Well, thank you very much, Jill. I'd be most grateful if you could keep your Bible open at that passage. John chapter 1, some verses from near the beginning of that chapter, and then more verses in the middle of it, pages 1063, 1064 in the Church Bibles. Um, Here is a government health warning. If you don't like cute stories about other people's grandchildren, then put your ears, your fingers in your ears for the next 30 seconds. Two days ago, uh, little Keris, who is two and a half years old, uh, arrived at our house and rushed through, closely followed by me, rushed through to our front room. Keris rushes everywhere. She's stopped dead in her tracks. Her jaw dropped open, her eyes grew large, her face shone with wonder, and she called out at the top of her voice, Grandma, look, a Christmas tree. Well, I like Christmas trees too. I love this one. I love all the decorations in our church. They're going to look even more resplendent this evening at our carol lit carol service, but you know what I'm going to say, don't you? By the way, take your fingers out of your ears now. Take your fingers out of your... (laughs) Got it. You know what I'm going to say, don't you? If a small child can express such wonder at a Christmas tree, what has happened to our wonder, not just at Christmas, but at the Christ who is at the heart of Christmas? You perhaps realise that John's Gospel doesn't have a nativity story, as Matthew and Luke's Gospels has, what John does with Christmas is this. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And then John jumps 30 years to the entrance of Jesus into his public ministry and to the witness of John the Baptist to Jesus and his ministry. And I want to ask this morning, what has happened to our wonder? And what can we learn? What, it's not simply what we can we learn, but what would energize and inspire our witness as we look at the way that John the Baptist, Baptist witnessed to Jesus? He was witness to the wonder of Jesus. Can we, are we, too, witnesses to the wonder of Jesus? It's all wrapped up to begin with in the first two verses of the reading which Jill gave to us. John chapter 1 and verse 7 and 8. He, John the Baptist, uh, came as a witness to testify concerning the light... And it's clear that the light has been referred to initially by John as the word. And then we'll later hear that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Clearly Jesus, the light of the world. He came as a witness to testify concerning the light so that through him, through John's witness, all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. And there in seed form, I think, are three ways in which John 
was a witness to the wonder of Jesus. And these three ways are unpacked, I think, for us in the second part, the longer part of the reading, verses 19 to 34. First thing about John is he knew who he was. He knew who he was. We had it in verse 8. He knew that he was not the light, but he was a witness to the light. And this is unpacked for us uh, then in the later part of our passage. When John says in verses 1921, three things that he is not. He says, first of all, I am not the Christ. I am not God's Messiah. It was an important thing for John to say because uh, Luke chapter 3 records there was a rumour around, ta- uh, around at the time that many people thought that John might indeed be the Christ, the Messiah. But John says no. In fact, later on in Acts chapter uh, 19, I think it is, um, uh, some disciples of John come, uh, appear at, uh, at Ephesus who know nothing about the Holy Spirit, and probably nothing about Jesus. They're still disciples of John. And they need to be told about Jesus. And actually, even in our own day, there's just a few thousand uh, of people belonging to a really rather terribly persecuted sect in Iraq called the Mandaeans, for whom still the greatest prophet is John the Baptist. So John needed to say, it needs to be clear, that John, for all his power, was not the Christ. He was not the Messiah. Well, if John was not the ultimate person, perhaps he was the penultimate person. Maybe he was Elijah. The dying verses of the Old Testament, written four centuries earlier, the end of Malachi in chapter 4, speak of one who will come in the spirit and power of Elijah. And so faithful Jews had been looking for that appearance. And maybe John is Elijah, come back in the flesh. Elijah, uh, and John says, no, chapter tw- uh, verse 21, no, I'm not Elijah. Strange, if you know your Bible reasonably well, you may know that Jesus himself did describe John the Baptist as a kind of Elijah. But John says, no, and I guess the difference is that they were expecting a kind of Elijah come back in the flesh, almost a reincarnated Elijah, if you like, and John says no. Whereas Jesus is saying, an Elijah, John was indeed an Elijah-type figure, both in his appearance and in his message. So that's the second thing that John says no to. And the third thing that John says no to is, no, I'm not the Prophet. Note the definite article here. There's a particular prophet spoken of in, uh, by Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 18, where Moses uh, says there will come a prophet, a very special prophet, coming in his own spirit and power. And again, faithful Jews were looking for that appearance of the prophet. And John says, no, I'm not the prophet. I'm not that. I'm not the Christ. I'm not Elijah. I'm not the prophet. John was very clear who and what he was not. He's also clear about who he was. 
Three things John says about who he was. He says, I am a voice. I'm a voice. And he refers back to uh, the prophecy of Isaiah and chapter 40, which speaks of a voice crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. So here's a voice of preparation. John says, yeah, I'm a voice. A voice of preparation. Then the second thing he says about himself is, I'm, I'm a baptizer. However, he says, I'm a baptizer with water. The one I'm pointing to will baptize with the Holy Spirit, a wholly different, a wholly more powerful baptism than mine. But yeah, says John, I'm a baptizer. And the, and the third thing that John says about himself is, I'm a servant. Well, actually what he says is, I'm less than a servant. Because if you look at um, verse 27, you'll see John saying, there's one coming after me, the, the laces of whose sandals I'm not even worthy to untie. Now, the untying of a guest's sandals was the most menial task for the lowest of slaves in a household. And John is saying, compared with the one who's coming after me, I'm not even worthy to do that. So do you see that John is clear about who he is not and who he is? And everything that he is points to Jesus and puts in places himself in his relationship with Jesus as being the one to come, the one who is God's sent one, the one who is utterly superior. And it seems to me that both the I am not and the I am are required, not only for John, for us all. If all I think about is who I am not, then I'm, I run the risk of the barren wilderness of worthlessness. If all I say is who I am, then I'm running towards the toxic weeds of pride. For each of us, as if we are followers of Jesus Christ today, to know who we are not and who we are is a very valuable thing, I believe, in God's sight. So let me ask you, could you say, if you were asked who you are as a Christian, could you say three things that you are not and three things that you are? Possibly in terms of the spiritual gifts, uh, many lists of which, uh, different lists of, uh, of which are given throughout the pages of the New Testament. Could you say, I'm not that, I'm not that, I'm not that. But by God's grace and by God's gifting, I am these one or two or three things. Could you do that? John knew who he was. The second thing about John is that he very clearly focused on Jesus. Verse 7 says, He came to testify concerning the light. And in verse 29, like little Keris and her Christmas tree, he shouts out, he can't help shouting out, Look, look at that, look at him. And then again, there's three things that he says about the one he wants to point his hearer's attention to. 
the Lamb of God. Look at the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, I would love to dwell for my entire time on that simple declaration. It's one of those things that uh, the great reformer Martin Luther would call a Bible in miniature. Just about everything we need to know about Jesus and his salvation and his gospel, his good news, is in that declaration. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What kind or kinds of lamb did John have in mind when he referred to Jesus Christ as the Lamb of God? Well, I think, knowing the writer of this gospel as we do, all kinds of lamb. The lamb that was offered in the place of Isaac in Genesis chapter 22. The lamb that was led to the slaughter in Isaiah 53. The lamb, even in another writing of John, in Revelation chapter 5, the lamb who is also a lion, but a lamb still carrying the marks of having been slain. I think my guess is that those and perhaps a number of other allusions are being made in that simple title, the Lamb of God, the Lamb that God provides to take away the sin of the world. Then, uh, John points to Jesus as the spirit bearer and the spirit giver. Do you see that in verse 32 and 33? He is the one who both on, both whom on the, the spirit rests and who, who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. So see here in these two declarations, both the negative and the positive. As Lamb of God, Jesus deals with our greatest problem, our sin, our rebellion against God. And Jesus, as the bearer and the giver of the Holy Spirit, provides us with our greatest resource. And then there's a third thing that John says, uh, declares about Jesus. He's the Son of God. And this gospel, John's gospel, is full of the relationship, the communion, the fellowship, the love between God the Father and God the Son. Never imagine for a moment that God the Father is some distant, cruel judge who simply wants to condemn you for your sins, whereas Jesus is the good guy who dies for those same sins. The Father willingly sent, and the Son willingly came. The Son who is in the bosom of the Father from all eternity willingly leaves that bosom, that fellowship, that love for us and for our salvation. This is what and this is whom John witnesses to. The Lamb of God, the Spirit bearer and the Spirit giver and the Son of God. He is obsessed with Jesus. Are we obsessed with Jesus? Would we mind if we are being accused if we were accused of being obsessed with Jesus? The evangelist Rico Tice tells of 
a woman, a long-term, a long-time church member, who in the end got fed up with her church, and in particular, the senior minister of her church, her complaint was, that man is obsessed with Jesus. (laughs) Well, he of course took it as the greatest compliment imaginable to his ministry, that he was obsessed with Jesus, and he only wished, he said he only wished it were more true. But John the Baptist was obsessed with Jesus. Let's permit and encourage one another to be obsessed with Jesus, just as John was all those years ago. And witness to Jesus. Because it wasn't just John called to be a witness, a very special witness though he was. Jesus, the, 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 the parting words of Jesus before his ascension to his disciples were, you will be my witnesses right around the globe. John focused on Jesus. But the third thing about John's testimony was that he pressed for a verdict. And let me just say in passing, John's gospel is full of this kind of language, of law court language, of accusations, of counsels for prosecution, counsel for the defence, and verdicts and judgments. And John came, John witnessed to Jesus so that, in verse 7, so that through him, through his testimony, all might believe. And this indeed is the entire thrust of John's gospel. Chapter 20 and verse 31, John says, These things I've written down that you may believe. It is a curious, curious fact, I think, that in John's Gospel, the word belief is never accompanied by any adjectives or adverbs. It's never if you believe strongly enough. It's never if you have enough belief. It's believe. There's a, a, a wonderful, a beautiful simplicity to that language of belief. Receive, accept, believe, trust. It's wonderfully uncomplicated. Sometimes too simple for many of us sophisticated people to be able to accept too readily. It's the thrust of this entire gospel. I sometimes wonder how many people were pointed to Jesus by John. I was looking a few weeks ago with our 20s and 30s uh, a group, wonderful group of people, um, at the weekend away at some passages, some episodes in Luke chapter 7. And people like the centurion, if you know that story, or the woman who had been a notorious sinner, just turn up and already are looking to Jesus to help them in their plight. How did they know? And I don't know, but I wonder if they've been sent there by John. Certainly in this chapter, in the verses, verse or two after uh, the reading that we had, the next day Jesus was there again. Uh, when he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the son of God. When, the, when two disciples of his heard him say that, they followed Jesus. As soon as John mentioned Jesus, he sent people to Jesus. That was John's job, and that's our job too, surely. So how can we 
renew that kind of Jesus focus, that kind of wonder in the Jesus that some of us have known and loved and sought to serve for many, many years. Has our love, has our focus grown a little bit slack and pale? Some of you know the name of Simon Ponsonby. He is a very noted uh, Christian leader and a Bible, uh, Bible teacher. He gave a series of talks in our own church just a few years ago, uh, very much appreciated by many of us, I know. Simon's written very, very recently, uh, having been a minister, um, a Christian minister for 30 years now, he's written recently about his experience of, of growing really rather cold in his faith, feeling that God was rather distant, that he was doing things by routine rather than from his heart. And he was provoked earlier in the year by attending the funeral of Michael Green, another uh, uh, great Christian uh, whose name you may have heard of. Michael Green, at the age of 88, was still on fire for Jesus, still leading student missions, still, when recovering himself from a heart attack, going around the hospital ward, sharing Jesus and praying with people. And uh, Simon was, was provoked by this to consider his own love for Jesus. And he went back to the Gospels. He heard Jesus saying to himself, uh, to him again, have you lost your first love? So he prayed for God to renew his first love. He searched the Gospel and realized how how full the Gospels are of people being amazed with Jesus. And he found his own amazement for Jesus being renewed. May it be that this Christmas, our amazement, not just for Christmas, but for the Christ of Christmas, to be renewed in our hearts and lives, so that we might willingly, and not just out of duty, witness to the Jesus who is, we say so often and sing so often, means everything to us. Or if I can put it even more briefly in the words of a great Methodist leader and evangelist, John Wesley. Get on fire for Jesus and people will come and watch you burn. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, kindle afresh a flame of fire in our hearts. Set us on fire with love for you. Baptize us again with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Fill us with love for you so that we will not only seek to witness to you you out of duty and responsibility, but as a privilege and as a joy. This Christmas and in the year to come, and in the years to come. And for those who yet have not had any flame of love for you kindled yet in their hearts, kindle that flame today, we ask, that we might all together accept, receive, and live for you. To your glory. Amen.